Amen. Uh, fourth and fifth graders, you're dismissed to your class. Fourth and fifth graders, you can go on to your class. Um, I took all of my blood pressure medication last night during the game, so I didn't have any this morning, and I had some caffeinated coffee this morning, so this sermon might be done in 10 minutes because I'm going to talk so fast, but uh, we're going to continue what we began last week in terms of going into the neighborhoods and Jesus living in the neighborhood. What we talked about last week, just by way of review, is God's passion and heart for people, and then what that actually meant in regards to Jesus being sent out into the middle of people, into an actual neighborhood with people all around him. Now, we know God could have done anything he wanted to do. He could have sent Jesus to some remote, distant part of the earth. He could have situated him in some very hard-to-locate cave in some desert where only those who went through a lot of effort could find him, but he didn't do that at all. In the end, God sent his son Jesus into the middle of a neighborhood. And this is why, as Janae mentioned in communion, I like uh, the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible in John chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And in so doing, Jesus teaches us his own heart and passion for neighbors. And so that in Jesus' own teachings, he talks about neighbors all the time. In fact, in one situation that we looked at last week in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, there was a teacher of the law who came to Jesus and asked him, hey, what is the greatest commandment? Which in my mind is sort of a trick question because Jesus could have responded with, well, if it came from God, it's, they're all great. There is no greatest. They're all great because they all come from God. But he doesn't do that at all. Jesus has no problem boiling the entire law and prophets into these, two, into these two things. One, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says this sums up all of the law and the prophets. They hang on these two commands. And so then we went on to discuss what it would look like to imagine together what it would look like for Jesus himself to move into our neighborhood. So let's pretend for a moment that Jesus moves into 238 East Ekman Street, and you live right around Jesus. What kind of a neighbor would he be? And we imagine at the very least, he would get to know the neighbors, maybe of the eight homes in closest proximity to us. He would probably learn and find out who the widow is in the neighborhood who might need help. And if she needed help taking her trash out, he would probably do things like that. He would get to know all the names of the kids on the street. He would even know which woman on the street is caring for her dying mother and the particular circumstances of that. And he would even probably get to know the teenagers who would look, you know, that house where the parents are never home and the teens are always there by themselves. And if the wind's blowing just right, you could even smell a little bit of pot. I, I think Jesus would get to know them. And in that, we talked about our vision here at the Living Stones Church because we know that Jesus' heart belongs, his passion belongs in the middle of a neighborhood. That's why we here at the Living Stones Church have committed ourselves to staying here at 718 East Donmoyer Avenue, smack dab in the middle of a neighborhood. And I want you to know, we aren't stuck here. Like, we have made a very conscious decision to stay here. Because it's hard for us to imagine Jesus ever having the conversation at 238 East Ekman Street. Now, I don't know if, I don't know, this neighborhood around here is just changing a lot. I'm not sure I really like the element that's moving in here. And so I'm thinking about maybe moving to the suburbs because of those sorts of factors. That here at Livingstone's Church, we have decided not to participate in what's called urban flight. Meaning we're trying to go somewhere else. But as we talked about last week, you know, our story was headed there. 
1999, as a church, we decided, I mean, all of us, we decided we were going to sell this building and move and build a brand new building on a major traffic area with high development, and we figured we could probably grow the church because we knew enough about church growth statistics just to do that. And then God came along in the middle of that and said, why would you move and go somewhere else when you are in the middle of a neighborhood that is desperate for the expansion of the kingdom of God? And so don't think that we're not aware on how it is that we can build a much nicer building than this and a much wealthier section of our town with a high traffic area and a hot spot of development. We could do that if we wanted to. And, and not to brag, I don't want it to be arrogant, but I really do think we're smart enough to know how to go after a very large church and probably another part of our town, but God has called us to stay here and to serve the neighborhoods of the south side of South Bend because that's where we're located, right in the middle of them. We are here to serve 42,500 people who live in the zip codes of 46613, 46614, that the 11,800 kids who go to schools around us like Monroe and Lincoln and Hay and Hamilton and Marshall and Jackson and Riley and Xavier and Veritas. And that means that because we decide to stay here, that means we have one functional urinal in the building. It means that we're aware that we have a limited kid space. It means we know, yes, we only have 308 tan chairs that we can fit in this room. It means that this is our lobby, and it's laughable we even called it that. We know that the main entryway looks more like you're walking into a coat closet, but we think Jesus would remain in the neighborhood, and because of that, we've decided to do the same. And we want to say then that Jesus lives on the south side of South Bend. And our dream is, is that we become the kind of neighbors to this neighborhood that if for whatever reason there ever were a for sale sign that would go in the front of our building, that any neighbor that drove by would go, no, not the Living Stones Church. We don't want them to move. They're a blessing to our neighborhood. They're a blessing to our kids. They love the, I mean, You've felt that, haven't you? You've had neighbors that you've loved that for whatever reason had to move, and when you saw the for sale sign, there's just something in you. Oh, no, not them. We want that for us as a church, that we love our neighborhood so well that if for whatever reason we ever decided to move, that the neighborhood around us would go, oh, no, we love them, and more importantly, they love us and are a huge blessing to us. And so as we talked last week, we want to take seriously that Jesus' brilliant plan to bring revolution to the earth and even more locally to our side of the city is not with more government programs. It's not with more policing. It's not with better charter schools. It's not even bigger churches. But rather, it's with this, his people living out these two things, Loving God and loving their neighbor as themselves. There was a group of about 20 pastors in a suburb of Denver called Arvada that got together with the mayor of the city of Arvada, Colorado to talk about how they might partner with the city or cooperate with the city to kind of help the city in some particular way. So picture in your mind, 20 pastors meeting with the mayor of Arvada, Colorado. His name is Bob Fry. That's the mayor's name. And in response to the question of, you know, how can they partner with the community and the city to make it better, this is what he said to them. He said, the majority of the issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or at least drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. And then he went on just to talk about and explain how most of the issues in the city are not going to be met with more government programs, but rather with organic relationships in the context of just being a good neighbor. And so after the meeting, the mayor left, and he went on back to his office, and the 20 pastors remained to kind of debrief and to talk about the meeting and how did it go. And in the debriefing, one of the mayors, his, or one of the pastors, his name is Jay Pathak, he, he spoke up and he said, I mean, is there anyone else here who's just a little bit embarrassed right now? Like, 
we invited the mayor and asked how we could help the city out. And basically the mayor told us, yeah, if you could go back and get your people to actually live out the great commandment, that would help out our city. The mayor just came and spoke to 20 pastors and said, if you would just obey Jesus, then our city would be better off for it. And he kind of felt a little embarrassed by that reality. So the next week, those same 20 pastors invited the Arvada assistant city manager, Vicki is her name, to come in and talk about this being good neighbor thing. And she said this, which was so convicting to them. This is what she said. She said, from the city's perspective, there isn't a noticeable difference in how Christians and non-Christians neighbor in our community. I mean, at least from the city's perspective, there isn't much difference as far as we can tell between a Christian and a non-Christian in regards to how they neighbor. Isn't that painful to hear? Do I hear that go, ah, yikes. And then immediately think, ah, I wonder what they'd say about us. Like if we invited Pete Buttigieg to come in and talk to us or the common council or somebody in city government, if they were to address us, would they say, actually, from the city's perspective, I'm not sure there is much of a difference between you as Christians and even non-Christians in returns to, to neighboring in spite of the reality that we're following after Jesus whose greatest commandment for us is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if I could go ahead and move into confessional time now with you, I'm going to confess that in my head, in my brain, in my thinking, I think I've done a great job of metaphorically loving my metaphoric neighbor. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, in some conceptual sort of way, the idea of neighbor, the ethereal concept of a neighbor, I think, you know, with those I interact with or encounter on a daily basis that I run across, I mean, nothing jumps into my mind that would make me think that I hate my neighbor. And thus, I think I've metaphorically done well at loving my metaphoric neighbor. And sometimes I think even Jesus' parable, the Good Samaritan, which we're going to come to here in just a moment, helps me redefine my neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? Well, I guess anybody who needs help. And so I can think in my mind about, well, I mean, I did a service thing here, and, and then I, I helped somebody here. And you can kind of pat yourself on the back and think, I I'm, I'm, think I'm doing pretty good. But if you were to really ask, I mean, ask me this, no, I mean, literally, your neighbor's. Like Sam, your house, pick the eight houses in closest proximity to you, your actual flesh and blood neighbors, the people who live nearest you, your literal neighbors, how well do you love them? And then I think to myself, well, I mean, I don't let my dog poop in their yard. Well, you don't have a dog. Well, I'm doing pretty good on this then. Or I try not to mow my yard before 9 o'clock in the morning on Saturdays. Or, or, well, I mean, you know, I give the obligatory wave when I'm going out the street, you know, the... Uh, how are you? How are you? And then I, I come to realize that doing no harm to your neighbors is not the same thing as loving your neighbors as yourself. That I'm not fulfilling Jesus' commandment by simply abstaining from injury to our neighbor, which I will say this. If that's where you need to start this morning, I'm okay with that. Like, if your beginning point is maybe I shouldn't injure my neighbor anymore, that's a good first step in this loving our neighbor well thing. And this is what we talked about last week in regards to this question. Don't you think loving your neighbor at the very least entails probably getting to at least know the names of your neighbors? And so I'd like us to do a little exercise together. The bulletin that you've got this morning, open it up because in the center is a little graph that looks like this. And then grab a pencil or a pen or a crayon or a marker. I don't care what you use here. And let's kind of go through a little exercise together. And, you know, take it home with you if you don't want to complete it now, those sorts of things. But here's what, what you'll see. In the center with that house, that's you. That's where you live. 
The eight houses around it, the eight squares around it, represent the houses that are closest in proximity to you. And I don't care how you do this. Like if you live on a cul-de-sac, you could do everybody in the cul-de-sac. If you want to do, no, you're going behind you across the alley, that house. You could do it however you want to do. If you live out in the country, those eight houses might represent three miles of land. I mean, I get that. But however you want to do that. And then you'll see the A, B, and C. Go to the A column first. And here's what I want you to do. Write the names. I don't care if it's just first name, first name, whatever you want to do, of the eight houses in closest proximity to you. Just see if you could do that for a moment. Just the eight names of the, uh, the houses in closest proximity to you. See how far you can get in that. And like the, I mean like the real name, not the, hey, chief, or big guy, or drunk man every Friday night. Not that. I mean like their real name. Like what are their real names? And then after that, I want you to go to column B, and it's okay to keep writing if you're, still, if you're still on A, but in column B, write down a few things, a bit of data or information you know about those eight neighbors that you would only know if you connect with them maybe one or two times, right? So do not write down, they drive a red car, because you can know that without connecting. I mean, what are some of the things that you only know because you're connecting with them in some way? For example, the widow across the street from me, she grew up in Germany. That would be a point of data or information. The guy right next door to me, I know he's a, he's a mechanic, right? I only know that because of our able to connect once or twice. Maybe in your neighborhood, you know that the father, his father fought in World War II. Things like that would be in column two. Bits of data or information you know about your neighbor because you connected. And then finally, the third blank there, C, what would be their hopes and dreams? These are things you only know because you really are connected to them. Like you know them in terms of friendship and relationship. It might be you know that his, his dream is to retire, move to Florida, and open up a cigar shop. Like you know that because of real conversations and friendship. Or what are some of their spiritual beliefs and practices that you would only know because you got to know one another in regards to relationship? What would be maybe some of their greatest fears or hopes in life? And so in the end, when you kind of work through that exercise, statistically, here's where we're, pro- we're probably at. I'd say we might be a little better here, but here, here's what we know. Uh, only 10% of the population can answer the first blank. They know all eight neighbors. How, raise your hand if you've got uh, all eight houses close to you. How many of that would be? Okay, not, that's, not, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. Uh, only 3% would get through both A's and B's. Anyone got A and B down in Pat? goes down dramatically a little bit. And then C, all three of those, only 1% of the population could do all three. And so in in my mind, here's what I think. Jesus as a neighbor, interested in loving his neighbors, would probably try to accomplish all three. And it's in this exercise that it gets kind of practical and really where the rubber meets the road to make a difference because metaphorically loving our metaphoric neighbors doesn't do anything. It accomplishes nothing that Jesus' revolution on the earth and his dream for this city and our community is not accomplished through ethereal neighbors. It's accomplished by loving our actual and real neighbors. It's when Jesus, who lives in 238 East Ekman, actually loves the real neighbor in 242 East Ekman Street. Then we get to see the dream of Jesus come alive. Sometimes it has to get very specific and intentional and practical. And we know this is a church. That's why here at the Living Stones Church at 718 East Dahmer Avenue, we only do things here on the south side of South Bend. That's what we do. 
unapologetically, we collectively have decided that all of our energy and our resources and our focus will go into the zip codes of 46613, 46614, the 42,500 people who live there. Because here's what we know. We know, I mean, does God love people who live on the east side of South Bend in the zip codes of 46615, 46617? Yes, but just not as much as people on the south side. That's what we, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But here's what we've discovered, that churches who say that they're going to love everybody, you know who they actually end up loving? Nobody. And churches and individuals who say, well, I'm just going to serve everybody, do you know in the end who they actually end up serving? Nobody. That's just sort of functionally, it's harder to really have a game plan when everything's ethereal or when there's metaphorical neighbors. It's much easier when you have a very specific intention. By the way, going back to the east side, here's our end plan. Like, here's where we're headed as a church in terms of vision. Like, we fully anticipate within a year or two, or maybe three years, we, we want to send 150 people who are at this 718 East Dahmer Avenue who either has just a heart for starting a new church, maybe that entrepreneurial spirit, or maybe they live on the east side of South Bend in 46615, to start a Living Stones church in those neighborhoods, doing what we've done here on the east side of South Bend. So instead of talking about Riley, they'll talk about Adams. Instead of talking about Jackson, they'll talk about Jefferson. Instead of talking about Monroe, they'll talk about McKinley, and they'll do the same things we've done here in another neighborhood on the east side of South Bend. And then maybe those two churches will plant a church on the north side and the west side and in Mishawaka and in Plymouth and in Lake... I mean, right in the middle of a neighborhood doing Jesus things in Jesus' ways. And this is where we think we move from this kind of metaphoric concept of neighbors to know our actual real neighbors. And in it, this is how we believe God will change our community, our city, and the world itself. And I get that we all start as strangers. Like anytime you move into a new neighborhood or somebody moves, I mean, everybody starts as a stranger, but we don't want to stay there. And how do we move then from being strangers to being an acquaintance? And then how do you get from being an acquaintance to a genuine friendship? And in that, this is not a program thing. I'm not advocating this morning that the Living Stones Church launch some new program or some new ministry initiative. This isn't a, you can't program relationships. You just can't. It doesn't work. The best you can do is provide an environment in which relationships can grow and flourish, but you can't program that. And so how do we, as Living Stoners who are following after Jesus, love our neighbor well? The eight houses in closest proximity to us. Let me tell you what's going on today. Just by way of an example, I remember Janae was up here, gave, gave the comments at communion. Let me tell you what her and a few living stoners and other neighbors on Irvington Avenue are going to do today from 3 to 4 o'clock. So get this in mind. They're having a meet and greet from anyone who lives from Michigan Street to Miami Street on Irvington. They're having a meet and greet. It's for one hour, they're invited the entire, they all got postcards, they got flyers in the mail. For one hour from three to four, they're going to meet on the corner of Irvington and High or Irvington and St. Joe for hot chocolate and for cookies and to get to know one another, just to get to know their names. Going to be a few activities for the kids to play, those sorts of things. And at both stations, there's an entire map of Irvington Avenue. And everyone, if they feel comfortable, are invited to write in the map on their house their name and maybe an email address or a phone number if something happens in the neighborhood. And it is a brilliant idea to finally move from being a complete stranger to at least getting to know your neighbor. No pressure. Everyone, not everyone's going to show up. It's not like the whole, I mean, but imagine the possibilities that God can do with something like this where he takes people who just are willing to step out and in faith and to risk and are working together. Who knows if right now on Irvington there is a single mother who lives there who is lonely and isolated and desperate for friendship. 
that she might leave this meet and greet an hour later, and in her mind she now has a vision that other people in her neighborhood are like her and in her life situation, and maybe a friendship could be born out of that. It's the possibilities of what God is able to do is amazing to me. And why? Just because some people are willing to step out and just attempt to love their neighbor from going from being a complete stranger to maybe just at least knowing their name as an acquaintance. And you would be amazed, I mentioned to, the, to you last week, you'd be amazed at how many people at Living Stones lives on Altgeld. I mean, what if those homes on Altgeld got together with their friends and neighbors just to have a meet and greet or something like that? And you could just plot, I mean, all around us, people who live in close proximity, if they step out, no, enough of this metaphorical neighbor stuff, how do we literally love our real flesh and blood neighbors? This is what it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27. This is Paul giving a speech, but I want you to hear something he says here because I think it's important. He says, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, meaning God, even marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. That God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. I mean, I I love this language of, listen, God's marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their own lands. Look, what if God has a specific reason why you're living at your house in that neighborhood at this time? So you might have thought, well, it's just because that's all I can afford or I'm stuck here or this house meets my family's needs. And all that might be true, but what if God has a bigger plan, a bigger story where, no, you're at your house in that neighborhood at this particular time because God wants to engraft you into a bigger story that he's telling to do amazing things, that he's got bigger purposes than maybe you might have ever dreamt before, that maybe you will begin to shape the history and trajectory of our neighborhood and community in ways that you never thought possible possible simply because you're willing to step out of your comfort zone and to love God and to love your neighbor as you do yourself, just as Jesus commanded. And so let me encourage you this morning to just do something. I mean, I'm not saying it's got to be a big old block party. I'm not saying throw a barbecue for everybody. Just do something. Even little things God can take and, and do amazing things with. For example, maybe you and your family are always in the backyard comfortable, got your patio back there or your deck, you got the fenced-in backyard, those sorts of things. I mean, that might be where you live. Here's what I'd say. Every once in a while, try to move from the backyard to the front yard and just see what God does with that. I'm not saying all the time, but I think you'd be amazed at how much interaction you might have with other neighbors just by going from the backyard to sitting in your front yard from time to time. In fact, my guess is what will happen is if you've got kids, other kids in the neighborhood will start playing with your kids, and then behind them will be their parents, and you'll finally get to know and meet people who are in your neighborhood by doing something as small and trivial as going from the back to the front yard. Or do something like this. Just commit to taking a walk around your neighborhood from time to time. And as you do, just pray and ask God for opportunities just to get to meet your neighbors. That's it. No pressure. I'm not telling you go baptize somebody. Just to get to know their name. Or just serve one of your neighbors, even without being asked. They need their walk shoveled, or if you know the widow is having trouble getting her leaves to the, to the front of the curb, just help her in those sorts of things. Or if you're baking something that day, like a cookies or a pie, make another batch of cookies or an extra pie and give it to your neighbor. I'm telling you, if one of my neighbors brings me a pie, I love them. <laughs> Who doesn't love pie? It should be birthday pie, in my mind, is what it should be. It's a... Spend time eating together. Have a barbecue. Invite your next-door neighbors over. If you know that one of your neighbors loves a particular TV show, get together and watch it together. Throw a block party or step out like uh, Janae and others are doing and have a meet and greet. And I would say give yourself time, permission 
to be yourself. Because even as I say this, some of you are really extroverted, and you're like, ooh, I can't wait, ooh, let's go talk to everybody. And others, you're like, no, no, you be you. You don't have to be any other personality than what God has naturally given to you, but take your time, and let's just, I mean, this is like by next week, know everybody. Let's say this time next year, what God might be able to do in you and through you by you just taking home this bulletin and begin to praying about those eight houses that are in closest proximity to you. And I mean all of them. Even that guy that you know irritates you to no end. Because we all have them, don't we? We have that one neighbor that if they have a for sale sign on there, <laughs> the, hallelujah. I mean, right? Because Jesus doesn't give us an out here. He doesn't say love your neighbors except for the one that's really irritating and drunk every Friday night. He doesn't say that. And in fact, Jesus will say, oh, no, if you're following me, you're going to have to love your enemies, which might be some of your neighbors. And so what can God do if we took this chart and just over the next year just started praying for the people who live around us? And as we do this, let me say this. Being a good neighbor is not an evangelism strategy. Being a good neighbor is not an evangelism strategy. And if this is your only motive, you will not be a good neighbor. Because people can smell that, can't they? Don't people know when there's another motive at work here? Like, I'm trying to be nice to you so I can eventually sit in your living room with a whiteboard and draw the plan of salvation. Right? When people could sniff that real quick. And nobody likes that. And see, it's like, have you ever had one of those phone calls where somebody's trying to sell you something? It's that high-pitched sell, and, and you know they've been trained to keep you on the phone as long as they can. And they've been trained to uh, close the deal right there. Well, this is a limited time offer. You need to act on this now or it's going to go back. I mean, right? And they, they even have that little manual that lets them know when you say this, they know what page to go to and read the script to answer your objection. And they're even taught not to, to hang up until they've gotten three no's from you, which is why when I pick up, no, 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 like that's what you right? It's obnoxious, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's, it's, no more, it's no less obnoxious when it's for a religious end. And so in that, I think there's a great difference between an ulterior motive and an ultimate motive. There's a big difference between an ulterior motive and an ultimate motive. Like, an ulterior motive is just that. Like, the real reason why I'm doing this, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to play my hand here. I don't want you to see what my real reasons are, but I actually have other reasons why I'm trying to get to know you, why I'm asking your name while I'm baking you a pie, and it's to, right? I mean, that's an ulterior motive. Now, I'm totally fine with you having an ultimate motive that says this. No, I'm interested in just being a good neighbor in an end of itself. But ultimately, I hope as we get to be good friends, I'll have an opportunity to live my life in such a way that you'll see that I love Jesus and there's something in that that causes you to want to know why it is that I love Jesus so much. That is an ultimate motive. And I'm, I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is the ulterior motive that has something else lurking behind it. That, oh, no. So, for Je- listen, for Jesus... Being a good neighbor is an end in of itself. Like he doesn't say, love your neighbor until they clearly have rejected me and then go ahead and, I mean, no, he doesn't say, I mean, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's interesting that Jesus has two greats in the scriptures, like, we've, like, the Christian, like we talk about the great commandment, but he also has another one called the great commission, like they're the two greats. And so we've been talking now the last two weeks about the first great commandment where Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. But there's also a great commission. It's in places like Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, where he says, listen, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. But the problem comes in my mind is when the church jumps to the second great before it walks through the first great. 
That for, far too often we jump to the Great Commission without first passing through the Great Commandment. Because in my mind, the Great Commission will go better for us if we walk through loving God and loving neighbor first. But in the end, Jesus, love for Jesus, it is always an action. I mean, when we were to boil it all down in terms of what it means to love our neighbor, in the end for Jesus, it is always about action. Jesus, when it comes to love, always removes it from that place of being exclusively in feelings or emotions or sentiment. And I'm not saying those are wrong things, but ultimately, God doesn't care, Jesus doesn't care whether you feel like loving your neighbor. In fact, you do have some neighbors that if you're waiting for that feeling to love them come over you, you'll never have it. It, it won't ever, like you will never experience the emotion of wanting to love that neighbor. That's why Jesus says it's not, that's why it's not about emotion. It will be about we choose to act in love towards our neighbor. And it's out of that premise that I think Jesus gives to us the story of the Good Samaritan. So I'm going to be in Luke chapter 10. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. Luke 10, verse 25. An amazing story. It's in response to another teacher of the law coming in and testing Jesus, an expert in the law. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, which that right there is amazing to me, right? This is a test that he's going to give to Jesus, but that's the context here. Teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he says this, and this is brilliant, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he's been listening to Jesus. This is good. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. What's the secret to eternal life? Loving God, loving your neighbor. And rep- but this goes on verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, which I, just as a warning, anytime you feel like justifying yourself with Jesus, I wouldn't go there. It never really works out well. But this guy wants to justify himself with Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, well, I mean, who is my neighbor? I mean, really, Jesus, when you think about it, like, who's my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus tells him this story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. And then they went away, leaving him half dead. But then there was this priest who happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, now don't forget what Jesus says, priest, nothing but positive thoughts comes into the people's mind, right? These are spiritual men. These are the holy men of Israel. So a priest sees this half-dead, beaten man, and then Jesus continues the story and says, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But he's, he's a priest. And then he goes on and says, listen, and then to a Levite, you know, the clan of Levi, I mean, spiritual leaders in our nation, dating all the way back, I mean, good grief. When he came to the place and saw him, he too passed on the other side. But then Jesus goes on, verse 3, says, but a Samaritan. Now, back in Jesus' day, if you're talking to a Jewish audience and you say Samaritan, you'd probably get some, boo. The Samaritans were always the bad people, always. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. And the Samaritans didn't care much for the Jews. In terms of history, what happened is Israel was taken over by other nations, and some of the Jews intermarried within those nations and had children, and they learned new languages and adopted foreign customs. Those were the Samaritans, and the Jews didn't like them at all. Like, they were like, oh, the scum of the earth. See, and I, I'm trying to think, well, how would we, I mean, I don't know how to translate that for us today. Maybe if I were to say a fundamentalist uh, Muslim who's a terrorist, like, that would be the scandal in the phrase Samaritan. He continues the story. 
But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Then he put the man on his own. He says, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these, now Jesus says here, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. See, there's a lot here I could preach on, but for this morning, what I want you to, what I want to emphasize is that the Samaritan was a good neighbor because he was the one who put mercy and love into action, that he did something. He overcame two critical barriers, which will be the exact same barriers you will face in loving your neighbor, and he had mercy. And he loved. And so here are the two barriers. Let me give them to you. The two barriers he had to overcome. One is just fear. Because we feel that, don't we? When we think about the idea of reaching out to your neighbor, getting to know your neighbor, all of a sudden we're flooded with fear. Fear of all sorts of things, even just the unknown. Like, I don't know, if, I don't know anything about my neighbor. I mean, what if they, they're different than me? They've got a different background. They've got a different ethnicity or maybe a different socioeconomic demographic. Or sometimes just, it's just the fear of rejection. What if my neighbor doesn't want to know my name? What if he doesn't want a pie? But really, who doesn't want a pie? But you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, what if this loving them gets rejected? To which I'd say this, at some point it probably will. I mean, there will be points where you'll have a neighbor who doesn't care to know you or anything about you, but we don't let the fear of that paralyze us into inaction. That if we're going to follow after Jesus, he's the one that always calls us to not have a spirit of fear, but one of power and good works to overcome those things and to enter in those spaces where God can use us. And here's the truth of the matter. Chances are the fear that's kept you from getting to know your neighbor is the exact same fear that's keeping them from getting to know you. That they've had all the same excuses as you have, and when you step out, you're actually bringing a barrier down for the both of you to finally get to know one another's names. People are very afraid. And, I mean, I get that all the time. Like, I'm a pastor. Like, people are afraid of that. You get that? Like, who knows what comes with a pastor? I mean... We invite him over. Maybe he'll judge us or he'll try to do this. Or, I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? And it happens to me all the time. Like people don't know who I am, don't know what I do, and so we're talking. And, and in the conversation, they're just being them, right? They use their language. They tell their stories. And somewhere along in the conversation, all of a sudden, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor, and I can see it every time. They're, they play back in their mind. Oh, my goodness, what did I just say? Did I just use that word? I think I used that word, right? And then, then they were them, and next thing you know, they're like, you know, and praise Jesus. I'm glad to be like, okay, you weren't talking like this just two minutes ago. Like, I don't want, I mean, I want you to be you. I don't want you to be anything different because of me. And, and so you see that, so sometimes you have to go out of your way to really kind of, you know, you don't need to be afraid of me. I don't walk on water and let me tell you my sins. And are you kidding? Oh, no, really, those are my sins. I mean, and so sometimes that fear goes all, di- all directions. And the Samaritan overcomes those natural animosities and fear that would exist between them and because of this moment of crisis, he doesn't see Jew or Samaritan. He only sees mercy. And in the same way, we need to step out and say, I don't see old, I don't see young, I don't see black, I don't see white, I don't see rich or poor. We see through the eyes of mercy. But the second main barrier is time. Maybe this was the Levite's problem. He was very busy. He had church things to do. Or maybe this is the priest's problem. He was on his way to church or some other churchy activity. He didn't have time to help somebody who was in need. And so this will be our other barrier. The truth is, I think more often than not, it's not that we don't want to love our neighbor like Jesus tells us to. We just don't have time to love our neighbor as Jesus tells us to. And and so in this, it's interesting, uh, there's two Princeton sociologists who want to do a study about this very issue, just the issue of time and compassion. 
So what they did is they had at Princeton uh, Seminary, uh, there was a seminary there on the Princeton University campus, and what they did is they assigned all the seminarians the task of having to deliver a message, a small sermon, about the Good Samaritan. Like you hear, I mean, the assignment is, go prepare a little talk about the Good Samaritan. And here's what they did. Then they gave each student a time to be at the, the class to give the lecture to a group of professors. But here's what they did. When they got there, they told half of the students that, the time, that their location had been changed and was now on the other side of Princeton's campus and that they were late, they needed to hurry, they were already a few minutes late. And what they did is they staged an actor in between where they were and the new building, an actor who was slumped up against a wall and was clearly in pain and moaning and groaning and needed help to see whether or not those students would help. And then the other half, they let them know, listen, it's been moved, you're not late, it's probably a good idea to go on over there, but there's no real urgency or rush to it. And here's what they discovered, that the group of students, seminarians, who are preaching about the Good Samaritan when they encounter the man who clearly needs help, if they're in a hurry, only 10% stop to help, 10%. For the group who didn't appear to be in a hurry, 63% would stop and help. And here was their conclusion. They says this, the convictions of your heart and the actual contents of your thoughts were less important in the end in guiding your actions than the immediate context of your behavior. With the simple words, oh, you're late, had the effect of making someone who was otherwise compassionate into someone who was willing to overlook suffering. That people who were otherwise compassionate in heart, if they felt like they were too busy or in a hurry, would find themselves overlooking. So in the end, the convictions of our heart or even the intentions of our will, in the end, didn't seem to translate into loving our neighbor. And so if you think you're too busy to love your neighbor, then you will be. And what that means for us and in the end is sometimes we'll have to say no to some very good things so we can say yes to some better things, even if it means saying no to some very good churchy things. Now, we'll talk more about this next week, but I want to invite you this morning to join in Jesus' revolution to change our community by simply committing ourselves to loving God and loving our neighbor. And in that, I mean actu our actual neighbor. Take this bulletin home with you. Cut out that little graph, put it on the side of your refrigerator, whatever you want to do with it, and really, let's just take a year and begin pray, to pray and ask God to open up doors of opportunities to move from being strangers to maybe being acquaintances to maybe going on to being true friends, and see what God does with that. If in the midst of all of that in our neighborhood, we get to see God's kingdom come and His will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Amen? Well, let's stand, let's pray, and ask God to give us courage to do just that. Father, we come to you and we're grateful that you are a God who's called us something bigger than just existing in our home. And so in that, we want to follow after your son who's trying to teach us how to not only love you well, but to also love those who are all around us. And I know, Father, that means for us that we'll need courage to overcome things like fear or even time barriers, or it might even be bad experiences in the past, but whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would begin to help us and to instruct us and even provide opportunities that we can love our neighbors even as we love ourselves. And that in the end, you'll receive glory for that. And the one who sits at your right hand, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.